draw tolerance will be like one of the things that I want to highlight uh, because it is certainly like very clear that we are going to see more frequent drought visits uh, by the warmer weathers. So uh, that's why uh, one of my projects, ongoing projects that I'm doing is actually drought tolerant corn uh, because drought tolerance trade has been introduced, was introduced in 2012 and farmers actively adopted uh, in the shape of stacked trades. So basically uh, seed companies inserted this trade into the genetically engineered seeds. So basically this stacking technology was used uh, when this techno- when this technology was introduced. So farmers uh, pretty naturally adopted because anyway, when they were seeing like iPhone 12 and iPhone 13 or 14, this kind of version update, and then this new feature was came in, uh, did, did, did come in. So, uh, so eventually like many farmers are adopting it still like we are like checking and testing how much uh, is effective under the extreme weather conditions mm-hmm. uh, because I could find like very moderate effect efficacy of drought tolerance traits so far, but not very drastic uh, effect, dramatic benefit uh, under extreme heat conditions. Yeah. So um, still like, yeah, I am like, we need more actually innovation because currently we don't have very uh, effective tool uh, to control for this. A whole new era of communication in the crop industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the crop industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to the field, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. Welcome to the Crop Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global crop industry. Welcome to the Crop Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Arnell. I am the Precision Nutrient Management Extension Specialist, Oklahoma State University. Today, we're honored to have Dr. Sinki Lee uh, with the Ohio State University. Dr. Lee is an assistant professor in ag economics. His areas of expertise include ag economics, environmental and resource economics, along with industrial organization. Sinki's research is at present focuses on R&D activities and the impact of new technology in the agriculture sector. Specifically, his current projects are centered on the advantages of biotechnologies, such as genetic engineered seeds, with an emphasis on uncovering their implications on farmers' welfare, environmental efforts, and sustainability to climate change. Dr. Lee, welcome to the podcast, and and give us a little bit of background of how you ended up in Ohio and and the work you're doing now. Yeah, thanks a lot for the nice introduction. So, well, like I like I originally from South Korea. I studied economics, but like and then I did my PhD in Iowa State. Um, But like when I was studying actually my PhD journey, uh, my father retired and then started our family farm. So actually back in South Korea, still he's running an apple orchard. So when I was just like taking the coursework, I also like vividly like saw and kind of indirectly experienced how my father was like building his own farm. So it's actually all a sequence of technology adoption. So sometimes irrigation system, sometimes it was planting, sometimes even like purchasing additional land. So like through that process, that really inspired me to be an ag economist. So, uh, so all this decision making really like made me motivated. And then I really like 
pursued this way of R&D and the value of technology. Then finally, like, luckily I got a uh, job in like at, at the Ohio State. So now I am in my third year as an assistant professor. So, so the real question is, how often does your dad call you for economic advice? <laughs> well, like he is, I think maybe he's more confident than me. So maybe he just like, but still like he actually, we have very good conversation very frequently about like how the farm is going and what would be the good like herbicide or pesticide mm-hmm. season when it comes to the market situation changes. So usually those kind of things, especially the input choice is the main topic of our conversation, actually. That, that's fun. I know some of my family, it took me to be a, a professor for over 15 years before they started asking me questions. So the fir- first 10, I didn't have many. Uh, moving on to your research, you know, you highlighted your uh, you know, economic evaluation of technology, specifically seed technology. So share with our listeners a little bit about what your research is doing and what it's finding. Yes, of course. Um, yeah, one of, one of my research interests is genetically engineered seeds, as you mentioned, uh, but I am agricultural economist. So I usually try to understand it through a lens of economics. For instance, I explore seed innovation in various angles. Sometimes it's yield effects. Sometimes farmers' adoption decision in the input market. Sometimes it's sustainability uh, impact. So those kind of things are pretty like broad range of my interest when it comes to any kinds of innovation. But nowadays I mainly focus on the biotechnology. So what are some of your uh, most recent findings when it comes to biotechnology? Uh, economic implication. So probably like one of the most fascinating projects that I want to share is one research that I recently finished and published, published, uh, which is about the evolution of pesticide toxicity along with the adoption of genetically engineered seeds. So when it comes to the GE, I usually call it GE seeds. So GE crops uh, such as herbicide tolerant crops or insect resistant corn there has been a public concern that the GE technology could worsen the environment or even destroy the ecosystem. For example, when commercializing glyphosate-tolerant corn or soybean, people worried a lot about the potential overuse of glyphosate uh, because if crop is glyphosate-tolerant, farmers will have, have a higher incentive to apply more glyphosate. So uh, plant scientists and agricultural economists uh, investigated this issue for many years, and their key findings documented in the literature tells us that uh, it was true the glyphosate usage has uh, dramatically increased during the adoption period of GE crops, I mean from 1996 through 2010. Uh, but more interestingly, what researchers found showed that um, the toxicity of applied pesticides has significantly decreased during the same time. So my co-authors and I delved into this issue with plot-level data with over 200,000 observations, so pretty much comprehensive data set. Uh, Specifically, our study investigated pesticide use of corn and soybean farmers in the U.S. uh, from 1998 through 2016. Um, So so one of the contributions that we made was to reveal the evolution of toxicity associated 
with the multiple uh, pesticides. So we calculated the toxicity by the sum of individual risk quotients, uh, which we call the total risk quotients, and we reported results for four different organism groups, uh, mammals, birds, fish, and honeybees. Uh, and based on the plot level data, we did some panel analysis controlling for some confounding factors. So anyway, some other behavioral aspects were controlled. And then under this setting, we could confirm again that the applied toxicity was on average lowered by the adoption of uh, GE varieties across four target organism groups, mammals, birds, uh, fish, and honeybees. However, some additional like, information that we also found was actually uh, most of the toxicity benefits by GE adoption dissipated over time. So for herbicide-tolerant varieties, for instance, um, this was due to the increased use of uh, old-line herbicides by GE adopters. Uh, we presumed this was a likely consequence of the growing problem of glyphosate weed resistance. Um, as a side note, the applied honeybee toxicity showed the sharpest increase during the GE era, in, 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 in fact. Uh, but most of this increase was driven by the adoption of neonicotinoid uh, seed treatments rather than GE insect resistant traits. So actually, that is kind of the beauty of the model. So we could filter out the effect of the neonicotinoid seed treatment effect. Then we actually could not see a very significant impact of the honeybee toxicity increase uh, because after controlling for the uh, confounding factors, uh, as we could successfully control and filtered out the, the neonicotinoid seed treatments. So then the pure GE impact on the honeybee toxicity was not very much significant. But well, that's some fascinating findings. Um, as we, as we continue the discussion and I'm, I'm looking for your hot top, the, your hot topics that you listed, um, I just we just had a grad student present. I, I lecture at Oklahoma State and part of this program uh, class I'm in. The grad students have to present about agriculture in their their home region. One was uh, this morning was a Canadian, and and the discussion came into the movement of corn uh, corn production into Canada and moving north. Uh, and one of your topics is climate change corn yield projection. I'm assuming that this movement of Canada is partially due to genetics, the improvement of short day hybrids, uh, maybe also climate change. So, you know, talk a little bit about uh, your your work in climate change, your, kill, your um, corn yield projection and, and those aspects of production. Yeah. Um, so that is actually a very interesting project because. Uh, we initially tried to actually estimate the pure genetically engineered yield effects. Then actually we finally extended it to the, the climate change context. So we, I didn't expect the project could be uh, in that shape, but eventually that had pretty good uh, and successful. So as you mentioned, actually that is true. Like when it comes to the climate change assumption, usually we assume a warmer climate condition uh, down the road then uh, certainly the northern region will be benefited with a little more favorable or suitable condition for the corn growth. And then the southern region will be kind of, you know, get the extreme heats and the probability of that will be higher and higher. Eventually, some of them cannot be actually used for the, for the corn growth. So 
Uh, in that paper, like with my co-authors, we actually assumed a very, very uh, conservative approach. So basically what we assume is, okay, let's assume that all farmers are just doing uh, as business as usual so that like farmers are not taking any adaptation behavior, but just what if they are just relying on the technology advancement? So just technology first advancement versus adverse weather condition due to the climate change. Then given the climate change scenarios, how, how many times of significant innovation do we need down the road? And then for the yardstick, we used the genetically engineered seeds. And eventually we found actually we need, we will need significant number of innovations down the road. Uh, so that was pretty striking uh, because then I also could see, like I also could draw a map which region will be impacted a lot by the climate change. And certainly the southern region, like, including probably Oklahoma and uh, some like even Missouri, they got like significant damage uh, by the climate change based on our model prediction. And then some no northern like states like um, Michigan or uh, Minnesota actually got some like positive impact due mm -hmm. to the warmer weather. So um, I think that is something I want to mention. But for your point, again, for the maturity dates, uh, that's actually we couldn't uh, do that with our data set because of the data set's limitation. But nowadays, actually, I have a new data set about this with all full information about the planting dates, harvest dates. Mm -hmm. So now I can have a very precise window of the growing season. So probably with that data set, probably I can uh, investigate that issue again. Uh, that's interesting. So you mentioned um, significant innovations, especially when it comes to Oklahoma, Texas, the South. I'm assuming the Southern Great Plains, Central Great Plains. Is that in terms of drought tolerance, heat tolerance? What What are the innovations that you and your co-authors kind of maybe projected that would be needed to come along? Probably, I think drought tolerance will be like one of the things that I want to highlight uh, because it is certainly like very clear that we are going to see more frequent drought visits uh, by the warmer weathers. So uh, that's why uh, one of my projects, ongoing projects that I'm doing is actually drought-tolerant corn uh, because drought-tolerant trade has been introduced, was introduced in 2012 and farmers actively adopted uh, in the shape of stacked trades. So basically uh, seed companies inserted this trade into the genetically engineered seeds. So basically this stacking technology was used uh, when this technology, when this technology was introduced. So farmers, uh, pretty like, naturally adopted because anyway, when they were seeing like iPhone 12 and iPhone 13 or 14, this kind of version update. And then this new feature was came in, uh, did, did, did come in. So, uh, so eventually like many farmers are adopting it still like we are like checking and testing how much, uh, is, effective under the extreme weather conditions mm -hmm. uh, because I could find like very moderate effect efficacy of drought tolerance traits so far, but not very drastic uh, effect, dr dramatic benefit uh, under extreme heat conditions. Yeah. So um, still like, yeah, I am like, we need more actually innovation because currently we don't have very uh, effective tool uh, to control for this. 
So, so I assume in this conversation, you're really thinking corn and soybean, but if we look into the Southern region, instead of focusing on innovating our current crops, has there been much look on the economic side of introduction or reintroduction of crops that are not corn and soy and their impact on the society? Yeah, that's actually a very good point. Probably like switching to other crops that when, when, when it comes to the climate change adaptation conversation, that is actually one of the main tactic that people consider because probably it may not be like uh, the, the best that from the farmer's standpoint of view to continue the same crop under the changed climate. So probably uh, switching to other crops might be a reasonable choice. And that's some people like still like working on and uh, some researchers are still looking at it. But then now, like it's very difficult, you know, question because people do not predict what will be the best crop to be chosen in the future. So probably it's going to be pretty like, I think, gradual learning process that probably some portion of land will be switched to a certain crops. And then if that is successful, then that will be dominating in that region or otherwise they will switch again and again. So how mm-hmm. much fast that growers find the sweet spot will be, I mean, sweet crop will be the, the key, I think, question that we are, uh, we have to answer. We're, we're actually in our region expecting a significant shift from winter wheat, grazed winter wheat or dual purpose where you grow wheat, graze it and then take it for grain. We're looking at a significant shift over the next two years back into a grassland because we are the prairie. We were originally a prairie, so we're seeing a shift or an expected shift back in some of our, our land has been impacted by extreme weather events from a cultivated crop to a perennial grass back into a more grazing system, which is the economists are expecting to be a little bit uh, less volatile in the peaks and the troughs of the economic return for the producers. Well, I, yeah, I think I think that is a reasonable like choice. So, yeah, like, yeah, probably I should keep checking on that because mm-hmm. uh, well, probably I, I guess one of the reasons was recently wheat market was pretty bullish. So that's why, like, yeah. especially wheat was chosen for this as, a, as an alternative. So. Let's see how the market is evolving and whether this will be uh, like a stable choice. So uh, part of your expertise, I'm reading through your list and there, there's a term I, I'm intrigued by. It's uh, you state that your expertise is price shock pass through. Tell me about what price shock pass through is, because I haven't heard this one. And I'm going to I want to uh, bug all my economy, uh, economist buddies and, and have them lecture me on this. Yeah. Th- th- as I mentioned, like I'm from South Korea. So like, you know, that is this is not about, I think, U.S. Ag, ag system, but probably many growers will be still like interested in this topic because uh, we also nowadays do care about our export progress. And actually, like. South Korea is one of the major ag partner uh, with U.S. because South Korea actually imports uh, most of the sta- staple uh, crops from the outside of the country. Uh, for instance, wheat, uh, 99.x percent of wheat are actually imported from, uh, from foreign countries uh, in South Korea. So that actually triggered me to study what would be the, the volatile global food price actually affects the domestic food system. So it's kind of actually a little more broadened topic, broad topic about the food supply chain. 
So we have experienced, you know, uh, trade war, COVID, COVID rebound, and a war in Ukraine, and nowadays even like the war in Israel. So these are all kind of influencing the food system and uh, food prices very volatile. Uh, given the situation, then I just wanted to highlight, okay, then when it comes to a small open economy that relies heavily on the foreign crops, what would be the, the, what would be the consequence in its food supply system? So the pass-through means actually when the upstream price was shaken, then how much downstream or even the finer consumers are seeing the price changes. Probably I think U.S. customers will also have had also a similar experience a couple of months ago when we had the agflation issue. So when the, when the ag price has gone up significantly, U.S. customers actually saw the retail price of eggs was too high. Some people said it was exorbitant. So uh, probably uh, in that context, we can learn some lesson from here. But uh, what I use here is basically I analyzed some like uh, food industry firms' performance. So basically I used their balance sheet data, their income, their asset, their labor cost, and then their firm performance was used. And then finally, there is some like, you know, uh, approach in the empirical industry organization to capture how firm markup can change. So, then, so given the firm level markup, then I could actually estimate how much up, uh, upstream price, like crop price, imported crop price, has uh, gone into like has influenced their uh, pricing behavior. So finally, that pass-through rate is kind of indicating how much consumer got the pressure from the increased imported crop price. Uh, so it's kind of actually giving some, um, giving us some lesson of how the global food price shock is affecting this uh, small open economy in the world. That's fascinating. So another one of your things um, that you've, you've looked into as your expertise is, is technology adoption. So my, my specialty is precision ag which is really interesting to see the adoption of different technologies, whether it be the use of genetics, use of machinery, or, or variable rate or prescription application of fertilizer. So, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about your work and, your ex- and what you've done and un- trying to understand technology adoption or lack of adoption. So when it comes to the technology adoption, usually economists just try to think it as a, as a decision-making process. Probably you are familiar with that. So it's kind of what is the marginal benefit of adopting this decision or what is the marginal cost of adopting this technology? So actually it can be applied to the machinery, precision ag, or sometimes uh, biotechnology. So, and then I, I mainly focused on the biotechnology adoption. Okay. So um, one of my earlier works was actually this uh, soybean cystic nematode uh, resistant seeds. Mm-hmm. So, you know, soybean cystic nematode is actually one of the most har- uh, harmful like, uh, pathogen in, in the soybean uh, production in the U.S. So, um, but the tr- tricky part is this soybean cystic nematode is actually playing its role underneath of the soil. So farmers cannot observe it, and it is not really like, you know, uh, it doesn't disappear uh, by any means. So that's why it's pretty much frustrating uh, uh, past stress. Uh, 
So soybean cysts nematode SCN resistant seed was actually introduced and developed for a long time. But then now the essential component for farmers is the information because farmers knew that this technology was existing, but also evolving along the time. So farmers really needed a transparent you know, uh, information source. So I actually combined uh, this issue with the value of extension service. So, uh, and I picked one extension program and how their seed testing pro- gave some useful information to farmers and how farmers actually reacted to that when they are purchasing seeds. So I actually analyzed the seed market and farmers' behavior and given the seed uh, trait like SCN resistance as well as the test information by uh, extension, then whether that actually influenced farmers' demand. So through that, I could actually measure the value of the seed technology as well as the value of the innovation and value of the extension program that provide, provided a useful information for this. So, so let me ask you this, and I, I've uh, some of my most challenging, not challenging, but most uh, back and forth conversations tend to be with economists, whether it's Oklahoma State, Arkansas, Kansas. I, I know quite a few of the ag economists, and so we get into some good, good discussions. One of the challenges that I see from my realm, and I'm curious on how you, you address this as an economist in terms of adoption, for me, I'm, I'm fertility. So fertilizer application is also deemed as a risk aversion technique. And so the adoption of technologies that, that at least emotionally are driven or emotionally driven decisions are really challenging to adopt or to transfer. But in your terms of genetics, <clears throat> the adoption of genetic technology, how much of that decision is emotional and how much of that decision is based upon the economics of improved cultivars or resistance? Uh, I, I think that is a really great question because usually we frame it in the learning process. So in the initial phase, of course, probably when it comes to a new technology, most farmers will be scared or if especially they are risk averse, they are reluctant to adopt it. So that's why it's, there must be some early adopters. So early adopter farmers just jumped into the technology and if they show some significant benefits, then finally some followers will be adopting it, adopting it. Then finally, for instance, in the case of genetically engineered seeds, uh, through that process, eventually like farmers, above 90% of farmers eventually adopted GE seeds in corn and soybean. But also at the same time, when some technology shows, you know, it is now outdated, then farmers starting this adoption then actually the same process can happen in the opposite way. But like, like you said, like this the kind of uh, psychological aspects are a pretty important thing. And usually we try to frame it in the process of learning and information dissemination process. That's interesting. So in the last couple of minutes, I'd like to, can you tell us a little bit about your dad's farm? You know, how big is it? How did he select the uh, cultivars of apple trees and how is it managed versus of something of a farm you would expect to see in the U.S.? You know, I, I love, I travel internationally often. I love to see agriculture in other places. And so give us just a brief synopsis of your dad's farm and operation. Sure. Uh, 
my dad's farm is actually not that large because uh, it is just a family farm and we are not hiring any additional labor like workers. Uh, I think a little less than a thousand trees. So it's still sizable because anyway, my parents should take care of it. So during the harvest season, we usually hire a few workers. But other than that, usually like my father just apply pesticides and do the planting as well. But um, like speaking of the 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 adoption process or I mean building up the the, the apple orchard, uh, that's actually something I want to say about the learning process as well. Because uh, when he because my father actually planted this apple orchard for a long time. So actually he like searched the information and found some appropriate friends and people who are already running a farm and then uh, learned uh, how to like build some like farm, like sometimes fence, sometimes security, sometimes uh, the plant disease. And my mother also actually attended a farmer's school, which is kind of the public education for new farmers. So my parents all learned about what would be the good like plants uh, in their region and what would be the uh, good like uh, varieties for the marketing purposes and what would be the good sales sources all these kind of things were considered and also like when they are choosing the land they also like try to find what would be the best like oh, like you know the, mo- the most attractive land uh, for the in terms of the fertility of the plants so all these kind of factors were considered and so where do they market their their crop to is it a local marketplace or larger or a blend so usually i think they still like market their apples to the large uh, public uh, channel of the marketing source. So uh, there is some like, uh, usually government runs very large scale uh, market. You know, that is usually a typical wholesale market. But actually my parents told us, told told me that uh, when the plants, I mean, the trees is, is, uh, is productive enough and the apple, apple quality is good enough, then usually there is an individual contract offer for, for farmers who, you know, is kind of purchasing the whole apples in the land. Like it's kind of forward contract in the, in the core market. So uh, they really want it, but still, I think they are way behind of that quality. So they just sell it in the public market. That's fascinating. It's time for our famous three. So wrap up our time with you, Dr. Lee. What is your go-to work resource? You know, where do you where do you turn to when you have a question about about what you do? So I would say that I'm actually extension economist as well as you know ag economist. So uh, I communicate a lot with extension educators and farmers. They are actually one of the main resources and teachers for me. So I learned from them and I learned new issues. I learned what is the real time, real world issues that farmers are experiencing nowadays that really ignites my research questions and sometimes extension projects. So that, because anyway, without like uh, being grounded on the real world issues, all the researchers can, can lose its meaning. So I try to stick to like their issues and try to hear their uh, voice as much as I can. I love that answer. Uh, if you have free time, Dr. Lee, what do you do in your free time? Well, I'm, 
I'm actually really a coffee person. I already actually, <laughs> I usually have more than three cups of coffee every day. Uh, so I like love, yeah, I love touring like coffee shops uh, whenever I am doing some county meetings. So I actually have a, several county meetings like traveling across the states and especially like ma- many like uh, county meetings within the, within Ohio. So I usually, when I am traveling, I always search new coffee shops and try new coffee to learn like, coffee, like new coffee products. And oh, if sometimes I found really good blending, like then I, I purchased the, the, the ground coffee uh, to get it to, to my office. <laughs> I love it. And finally, if, if, uh, if people want to know more about what you're doing at the Ohio State University, where do they go? You know, is, are you on social media? Do you have a website? Where can they go find out more about your work? So certainly I think uh, my department is, is Department of Agricultural, Environmental and Development Economics. We usually call it AEDE. So OSU AEDE will be the place that you can find my work and all the resources about me. Well, Sinki, thank you so much for joining us today. I greatly appreciate you taking your time to visit with us, visit with me and our listeners about what you do. Thank you very much. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at the help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.